This episode is brought to you by iFundWomen. Did you know that women are starting over 1,800 new businesses a day? Did you know that women only get 2% of VC dollars to start their business? So what's the solution for women founders? That's where iFundWomen comes in. From inspiration to realization, iFundWomen provides early-stage entrepreneurs with access to capital via crowdfunding and grants. They have expert coaching and a powerful community of women business owners. If you need to raise money for your business or if you're passionate about supporting women-led startups, head on over to iFundWomen.com. iFundWomen, for women who have big ideas, we're here to make them happen. And I think it's very interesting because what the research shows is that women are far less likely to negotiate for themselves than their male colleagues are. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really important to recognize that's not because they don't know how to negotiate. They often will actually negotiate more effectively than many men when they're negotiating on behalf of their company or their organization, or when they're negotiating on behalf of their family. Yeah. Um, you know, we are fierce defenders, yes. right? Like you don't yeah. want to be the fourth grade teacher when a working mom is unhappy, right? I mean, the reality is we are fierce negotiators on behalf of others, yeah. but we often don't negotiate for ourselves. Welcome back to Working Wife, Happy Life. I am your host, Bethany Baines. I would like to congratulate everyone on making it through January, what seems like the longest month of the year. I myself am just back from a quick coast-to-coast trip in about 24 hours. You know it's super bad when you log into the Wi-Fi on the plane and you're already being notified to check in for your return flight home. But alas, here we are. I am so excited about our episode today. I had the opportunity to sit down with Dr. Victoria Medvek and For those of you that don't know her, she is a professor at the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University. She is the co-founder of the Center for Executive Women at Kellogg, and she's the CEO of Medvec & Associates, a consulting firm focused on high-stakes negotiations. So Vicki is a complete force, and we spent time talking about negotiations and gender norms and how men and women approach conversations differently. And she's just a wealth of knowledge and stories and tips uh, and, and frameworks and all of this exciting stuff that I've actually heard people walk away from a single day seminar with Vicky and say it was more valuable than their entire negotiations course during their MBA program. So I encourage you, A, to love this episode as much as I do, and B, potentially get ready to uh, listen a few times or take down some notes because this is just gold. It is really fantastic advice and insights, um, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Here we go with my friend Vicki. How we met on our journey is I took your course at Kellogg. Right. Um, the Corporate Women on... Women Pro- Director Development Program. Women Women Director Development Program. Mm-hmm. Tell us about that. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> I have the great fortune of being one of the co-founders of the Kellogg Center for Executive Women. And the Kellogg Center for Executive Women focuses on getting more women onto corporate boards and into senior leadership roles. And as a part of that, we have two different programs. We have the Women Director Development Program, which you attended, Mm -hmm. which is designed to help women to get onto boards, generally boards of Fortune 1000 companies. Mm -hmm. And we've had a lot of success with that. More than 33% of our women are now serving on boards, and many of them are serving on more than one. And so that's the Women Director Development Program. It's designed for senior level female executives who are board ready to help them to think about how to position themselves for boards. And it's also really designed for women who might be thinking about a board in a few years Mm -hmm. to sort of do the pre-work and get ready so that they can be board ready when the time is right. So that's the Women Director Development Program. And then we also have the Women Senior Leadership Program, and that's focused on keeping women in 
moving them up and helping them to move into C-suite roles. Mm -hmm. And that program is very unique. It um, meets four times a year across the year. So for three days in October, three days again in the winter, three days again in the spring, three days the next October, and they come back over and over. They're constantly learning from each other and from the faculty, and they go back and use what they've learned in their companies, come back, talk about the challenges they've been encountering, and that program has been incredibly successful in helping women to stay in and move up in their roles. We have a lot of women from that that are now CEOs or CFOs or chief operating officers or chief marketing officers. We just had one come back the last time who now is a CMO um, from her company who's moved up to that role using what she learned in the Women's Senior Leadership Program. That's awesome. How did you how did you start? Like, were you at Kellogg School of Management? You realized you needed this. You mm-hmm. said you were the co-founder. Right. How did that happen? So I was at Kellogg and I had been recently tenured as a young faculty member. And I was asked by the dean if I would work on our women's initiative. And I had the opportunity to work with three amazing fellow co-founders. Um, one was Shelly Rosenberg, uh-huh. who was the right-hand person to Sam Zell and was really focused on women's issues and moving more women ahead. And then the other one was Wally Scott, who had been a former CEO of a number of different companies and was an adjunct faculty member at Kellogg. And the last one was Lloyd Shefsky, who was an attorney that worked with a lot of female founders. And the four of us talked about the fact that there were lots and lots of women at the beginning of the pipeline, lots of women in the near in the middle of the pipeline, but nearly no women at the top. Mm-hmm. And we wanted to really leverage Kellogg's unique position and our unique resources to try to address that challenge. So we thought we could help because we have a world-class faculty yeah. who could help to teach women how to rise up and move ahead in their roles. We thought we could also leverage our research to understand what were some of the barriers and what were some of the factors impeding women from moving ahead. But finally, and I think probably most importantly, we thought we could use our status within the corporate community to try to encourage and hold people accountable for making change. And so, you know, we often go and talk to CEOs about the fact that they don't have women on their boards, or we leverage our content to help think about how could you create a stronger path to retaining women and moving women ahead. Um, We partner with lots of different groups and speak with lots of different groups. We don't want to own this problem, but we want to try to help others to solve this problem. Yeah. One thing that I found really interesting when I took your course and and for our listeners, I was, um, as you'll hear over the next, you know, several minutes as as Vicki and I talk, I was fortunate enough to spend three days with you um, where we really solidified our relationship that's carried on for years now. Absolutely. Um, And I remember it was such a journey because the first day I was there, I felt like I was you know, ahead of my time, I probably should have, you know, not in a precocious way in that I, I was there five to 10 years too early. And mm-hmm. this was maybe a waste of time of an investment. And right. I didn't feel well positioned and really questioned and doubted myself. Um, and you picked me up from that and and made me realize the unique value that I brought and, and the unique experience that I have, but also that you know, life doesn't put you in places where you're not supposed to be when right. you're not supposed to be there. So right. like kind of trusting the journey a little bit. Um, so for listeners that we have that are younger, that are potentially thinking about mm-hmm. investing in themselves both for, you know, coursework or even just furthering themselves as, as professionals, but also thinking about down the road, do I want to get on a board seat? Like, what is, what is the ripe time to start exploring? So I think that your approach of starting early is actually very productive. And we see a lot of women who will come to our program after they've already retired and they're saying, okay, now I'm ready. Now's the time mm-hmm. I want to get on a board. And the reality is, is that some women can't be on a board while they're still working because their company may prohibit it or they may work in an investment bank or a consulting firm Mm -hmm. where it's not possible because of independence issues. But the reality is, if you could, the optimal time to be on a board is while you're still employed. And I actually would argue that women get a lot out of being on a board while they're fully employed because they can bring those lessons that they're learning back to their own companies. Yeah. And I think most companies see that having their their executives 
on one board, not more than one, but one board is the ultimate learning experience for senior executives, where I learn about strategy, I learn how others are handling strategy, I understand how others are handling challenging issues, I learn from my fellow board members. That's a lesson that I think helps to really evolve and develop the most senior leaders within your company. So I think it's a great thing to allow every senior leader to serve on one board. And it's great if you can serve on a board while you're currently employed um, to wait until the end. And then I think it's often sort of late for people to come to this idea that they want to do it. But the reality is a lot of the things that boards are looking for, you might not have done. It's kind of like taking your student who's a junior to see colleges, to have them hear that what they really should have done were really productive things during their freshman summer and their sophomore summer. And now it's like too late to do anything (laughs) about it, right? Right. The reality is if I wait until I'm like ready to be on the board to begin to think about, do am I doing the right things to be on a board? It may be too late. Um, So if you come early, I think it's a great way to learn like what's essential, what's important, what could I do to differentiate myself? Yeah. What are the capabilities I want to build? How do I make sure that I'm getting the right kinds of P&L experience so that I'm attractive to a board? How do I build out a skill set that will be great to offer in the boardroom? What are some of the capabilities that I have that I might get to deepen and explore more so that they really would be advantages to me in a boardroom. So I think that more of that pre-planning is actually very helpful. And I think you were able to do that because you came not when you were immediately looking, but that you had that sort of five-year time horizon to position yourself for those opportunities. Yeah. Frankly, I was just in a stage where I was antsy. You know, I felt like I wasn't necessarily being as challenged as I wanted to at work. I wanted to think about, you know, what am I doing 10 to 10, 10 to 20 years from now? And um, I I don't know. It just I feel like it kind of happens serendipitously. Mm -hmm. But what it's given me over these past few years is obviously not only my friendship with you, but the opportunity, like you're saying, to just have those thoughts in the back of Mm -hmm. my mind and what I thought was so helpful during the course, too, is you talk about how, you know, when people are looking for a board seat or a role or a job or an opportunity, there's so much emphasis on what you're doing to prepare your candidacy that I feel like we're not giving enough thought, maybe particularly as women, to whether or not that place is the right thing for us. And mm-hmm. you really taught us to kind mm-hmm. of think about it on the other side right. of that coin of like, what are the questions you should be asking? What are the red flags you should be looking out for? And how do you know if this is going to be a fit? What are the right things to think through? Right. And I think that's so important because one of the things I would say is you do want to think about, like, what are my differentiators Mm -hmm. that would contribute in the boardroom? And, you know, boards often will do sort of a skill matrix to identify what do they need. But I think it's really important for women to be able to speak confidently about what do they bring to the board? What are their unique competencies that would contribute to the board's performance? Mm -hmm. And that's important to know. But I also think once that company is interested in you, that it's really, really important that you figure out, do you have an interest in them? Right. Right. We always say it's very, very difficult to get on a board. It's harder to get off if you've chosen the (laughs) wrong one. Right. So you want to be really careful. You don't want to make a poor choice. Mm -hmm. And especially because it's very likely if you have a big job like yours, you're going to have one board opportunity, not multiple. Right. While you're working, it's unlikely that you're going to be serving on three or four boards. So you want to be very, very careful. I always say, you know, you can get D&O insurance to guard against financial risk as being a director, but you can never, ever get D&O insurance to guard against the biggest risk, which is the risk to your reputation. Mm. So you do want to do careful diligence. You mm-hmm. want to pick the right board. You want to make sure, for example, that that CEO is actually a CEO who's looking for board involvement and discussion and debate, not a rubber stamp of what they want to do. You want to make sure it's a a company that has good fiduciary responsibility and doesn't have hidden 
challenges in the closet around fraud or kind of misrepresentation of information right. that you would be uncomfortable with. So you want to make sure that you are asking the right questions, doing your diligence. And yeah. a part of what we teach people in the Women Director Development Program are those diligence questions that you should ask yeah. as you're evaluating, is this the right it's fit gold. for me? Yeah. That so. that list, by the way, is, is gold. Um, and I feel like it's something that we should do as an exercise for any of these decisions, like right. what are the right questions, sitting down and really thinking through it. But you're making me think of this uh, concept that you've probably heard of the glass cliff. Uh-huh. Um, and particularly, I would say, with board seats. So you're saying, you know, the protection against reputation. You know, do you see in, because I'm assuming you keep a close eye on these things as they evolve in the industry, do you see companies in trouble really trying to get more women on their boards at that critical time or, you know, mm-hmm. kind of that phenomenon of when there is a crisis, let's bring a woman in? Right. Um, do you see that happening or right. is that just floating up? Right. So I think that that is a real phenomenon. And I think you actually see it a lot around the CEO position. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this stems out of something that is called prospect theory. Prospect theory says that we're risk averse in the domain of gains and risk seeking in the domain of losses. It's this wonderful piece of work done by Danny Kahneman and Amos Tversky that actually was a part of Danny Kahneman winning the Nobel Prize in economics. Mm, It is a powerful influence tool, but it's also a really powerful tool to understand how people make decisions. Mm -hmm. The people are risk averse in the domain of gains and risk seeking in the domain of losses. So I think when you think about that, when companies are struggling and they have a crisis and they're losing money and they're losing consumers, they're in this domain of losses, they're more willing to take a risk. Mm -hmm. Well, what is risk taking? It's doing what is not Not, the status quo. And what is risk aversion? It's maintaining the status quo. So I think when companies are performing really well, they're more likely to be more risk averse. And it's far more likely that they pick the status quo incumbent kind of candidate for key roles. Uh Um, I think when they're suffering and they're facing problems, they're more risk taking and they're more likely to take some risk and and perhaps select someone who is not the status quo. I think, though, the challenge for this with women is, and I think we've seen this, is women will get selected into roles where there are big challenges facing the company and where the likelihood of success is smaller for man or woman right? uh, because they're in a challenging situation. And so I do think it's really important that we're careful not to oversample on like sort of just putting women into challenging roles because I think that you're setting up a situation where it's harder for them to succeed. Yeah. Well, it's it's really interesting to unpack that because you're – I mean, it's just something that I've heard about and that I've read about. But when you actually look at it as a result of a human behavior, then you see the pattern and then you see, okay, well, what are all the consequences of acting in that way Mm -hmm. because it's human nature? Um, And and then what impact does that have on the broader conversations and and progress that we're making against diversity? And it's just a spider's web. Yeah. No, I think that this idea that we're risk averse in the domain of gains and risk seeking in the domain of losses is key in understanding leadership selection. I'm certain that, you know, you see this also within the tech world, that a lot of companies that are technology companies are very risk-taking when they are first starting. Mm -hmm. Um, They're willing to take risk. They're seeking out risk. They're very, very, very risk-seeking. But I'm sure that you've seen that with success, that often breeds a complacency mm-hmm. and that that success actually often creates a risk aversion yes. that causes those companies to be now unwilling to take the kinds of risks that made them successful in the first place. Right. right? And that's a natural state of development of businesses. Yeah. As they grow, they often become more risk averse. I mean, it's a natural state of human development, too, right? Like, I'm just thinking about myself and the things that I did either in my career or my personal life as I was younger, some I won't mention on the podcast ever. But (laughs) as, you know, these things go, you become more and more, you know, risk averse the older you get and the less kind of boxes you have to check. I want to switch gears a little bit because uh, for, for our listeners, one of the... One of the areas that you emphasized with uh, our training and one of the areas that you do a lot of work on, particularly in your own business, is advanced negotiations. Yes. And this is just a topic I can't tire of because it's such a beautiful dance of human instincts. Right. 
And it's just such it's a fascinating sociological mm-hmm. analysis to me. And I would love to hear from you, you know, how did this become your passion area? How did this become your career? Mm-hmm. Um, would love to hear differences you see in terms of negotiation styles across different genders, anything that Sure. So I love talking about negotiations. And I've actually had a long-term interest in negotiations. So before I got my PhD, I was actually a professional fundraiser. And I would raise big gifts. So I would do major gift fundraising. So I was literally negotiating even before I studied the negotiation. But I'm certain that that background probably interested me then when I was selecting what I was going to study in my PhD program at Cornell. And I became very, very interested in negotiation. Um, A part of what I initially studied was decision making Mm -hmm. and in particular how people feel about the decisions they make. So I studied a lot around regret and satisfaction. And then I started to see this linkage that is if I could anticipate what I might regret um, or if I could anticipate what make me might make me satisfied, I could also leverage that in a negotiation situation to make the other side satisfied, right? To lead the other side to be satisfied. So that's where my interest in negotiation first started. But now I have taught negotiation for more than 25 years. I have worked with companies around the globe on negotiations. Mm -hmm. I teach negotiations in companies around the globe, but I also advise on deals. So I do a lot of advice on mergers, acquisitions, partnership agreements, licensing agreements, big customer contracts. And I love that work. Um, But one area that really fascinates me is what you raised, which is the difference between how men and women negotiate. Mm. And I think it's very interesting because what the research shows is that women are far less likely to negotiate for themselves than their male colleagues are. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really important to recognize that's not because they don't know how to negotiate. They often will actually negotiate more effectively than many men when they're negotiating on behalf of their company or their organization or when they're negotiating on behalf of their family. Yeah. Um, you know, we are fierce defenders, yes. right? Like, you don't yeah. want to be the fourth grade teacher when a working mom is unhappy, right? Yeah. I mean, the reality is we are fierce negotiators on behalf of others, yeah. but we often don't negotiate for ourselves. And I think there's a lot that we could talk about around that, about yeah. why that happens and how to overcome that. Well, I always say that, too, because I, you know, I have so many women in my day job where I feel like they're coming to me for career advice or about to have this tough conversation. I just had one today um, to help guide this woman. And I'm like, I am always somebody else's best advocate. Uh If I could just take my own advice and have the balls that I have when I'm telling people what to say to actually say it myself all the time. You know, it's so fascinating how easy it is for us to lift others. Um, And, you know, I also think that what I've seen, and I'm curious to hear your perspective on this, I've seen men negotiate for things that women may not have thought to even ask for. So in terms of assumptions or expectations of what is on the table, I have seen men put things on the table like, my family's not ready to relocate, so I will need an apartment local to the office and flights home every weekend. Or my father-in-law negotiated when he was offered a new job um, that he was going to have to dress nicer at this new job than currently, so he negotiated his wardrobe. Right? So, like, they will put things on the table that I think wouldn't occur to women. Do you see that type of behavior Mm -hmm. playing out? So there's actually evidence that that is true. So if you ask men and women to look at a scenario... Um, that describes the situation and you ask them to identify negotiation opportunities, Mm -hmm. um, men will identify more negotiation opportunities than women do. Men often see the world as more negotiable, more flexible, and women see the world as more fixed, more constrained, that it is given. And that's a huge difference because I'm not going to negotiate if I don't see that it is negotiable to do it. So I always say to men and women that you want to look around the world and think virtually everything is negotiable. And now I choose when I want to negotiate, but I want to see that there's an opportunity to do it. And I think this is so important because I think that when you don't see that you can negotiate, that's when you get frustrated. That's when you're dissatisfied. I'm a very happy person. I'm a very satisfied person. 
And I firmly believe that a part of why I'm so satisfied is because when I don't like something, I try to change it and negotiate mm-hmm. as opposed to just taking it as a given and thinking that it's just fixed and has to be that way. Yeah. So I think that when you take that control through negotiation, you actually do make yourself have much more satisfaction in yeah. terms of your life. How did you get that message, though, that it was okay to do that? Because I do think when we see some of these behaviors play out so distinctly across the genders that there's actually studies or proofs or, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, whatever, just explanations of why it happens so systemically, it has to come from the messages we receive or the way we're socialized. It's not not biological. So, like... How, how did you yeah. get that message that it's okay for you, Vicki, as a little girl and, and growing up to not be satisfied right. and to make sure you find what you need to be satisfied? Right. So I'm not sure that I knew that when I was a little girl. And yeah. I will tell you, I absolutely believe that this is socialized into us. Yeah. I think that um, if you ask five-year-olds today to sort cards into piles of like, what is mommy's job? What is daddy's job? And what do both parents do? and you give them a, a stack of household items, they will stack the cards in very sex-stereotyped ways, even today, right? Yeah. Not five-year-olds when I was five, not five-year-olds when you were five, but five-year-olds today will still yeah. put the stove in mommy's pile. And they'll put, the, my house, but they'll okay. put the they'll put the hose <laughs> in daddy's pile, right? They'll put yeah. the rake in daddy's pile. They'll put the dishwasher in mommy's pile. They still sort these in very sex stereotyped ways, which suggests that there are probably in many households still tasks being assigned mm-hmm. in those sex stereotyped ways. Right. And I think that that does cause a difference in the opportunity for girls and boys to learn to negotiate. I mean, if you just play that out, right, yeah. and think about it, if boys are out raking the yard or washing the car or shoveling the snow at a young age, like age 11, age 12, then they're out in the yard. They're doing this work. They're in the driveway. They're doing this work. And a neighbor comes by and they see them and they say, you know, when you're done shoveling your driveway, you want to come shovel mine? Or when you're done cleaning that car, you want to come wash mine? And immediately, at a very young age, boys find themselves in external labor markets. And they recognize they have a skill and they need to negotiate for what that skill is worth in the market, right? Think about girls. If they are doing what is the sex-stereotyped thing that we would think of because of this sorting of the cards, they might be loading the dishwasher or they might be setting the table. It's very unlikely that any neighbor stops by and says, when you're done with that dishwasher, can you come do mine, right? Well, after you set that table, why don't you come set mine? The reality is is that that sex-stereotyped job assignment may be affecting the likelihood that boys and girls are getting the opportunity to see their skills as having a market. So the first chance might be when girls are babysitters. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people advise girls to not negotiate, to take what they're offered and not be negotiating. Mm -hmm. So I think that there is a socialization. I agree with you completely. I don't think it's biological. I think it's socialized into us. But that girls are socialized into not negotiating, into thinking that no means no. And I see this all the time. We need more boys that, to know that. That. <laughs> boys, that boys will see, you know, that no means maybe, right? And that and girls think no means no. I see this all the time when I teach negotiations. I'll say, what does it mean when the other side says it's not possible? And women will say, it means it's not going to happen. It means it won't work. And men will say it means they want something else. It means they're holding out. They want to see what else they can get. Mm-hmm. They might say yes, but they're going to say yes later. right? This idea of is no the end point in the negotiation or is no the beginning. And I see this all the time because I talk to women about negotiating for themselves. And a lot of women will say, Vicki, I tried. I tried really hard, but they said no. And they see no as the wall they ran into that ended the negotiation. And I think men often see no as a window they climb through. Game on. Let's go. The negotiation begins at no. Mm. And so when I see it as an ending, I'm never trying to explore that and continue that on. And I think that's where this socialization to what does no mean? Are things fixed? Are they given? Those are really key components. There's a a great study that was done. It's done and it asked men and women about a job posting. So there was a job posting and it had five essential requirements. How many of the requirements do you think women needed to have 
before they would apply for oh, the job. Oh, 100%. Uh, five, right? Yep. Five. Yep. And, you know, some women will actually offer maybe six, but all five for sure, right? <laughs> How many do you think men need to have before they will apply for the job? Probably two. Three. One. No One. way. One. That's what they wanted. The rest is like discretionary. Those are optional. I've got this covered. Wow. Now think about what that advice means because that says women see the world as fixed. Men see the world as negotiable. Women are saying, there's five requirements. I don't have them. I'm not going to apply. Men are saying, I've got that one. That's what they really need. I've got my name in the hat. Yeah. And so women are taking themselves out, and men are putting themselves up for the role. And I think that that is so important for women to hear. And I always say to every woman, it is never your job to decide if you're qualified for a role. That yeah. is somebody else's job. Yeah. It is your job to say, I'm interested. It's your job to raise your hand. It's your job to express your interest. It's somebody else's job to assess whether you're a good fit. Yeah. And whenever I say that, people will be like, Man, I don't want to take a job that I'm not qualified for. But I always say there's a long road between application and acceptance. Yeah. And you have a lot of time to learn about that job and to figure out if you can succeed. But never take yourself out because you don't have the requirements. And the truth, first of all, that's gold right there. Um, the truth of it is, though, too, is like a lot of women will never feel like they are qualified. Right. Like that they've got all of that stuff buttoned up to a point where they're not going to walk in that first day with that imposter syndrome of that A hundred percent. No, I think women often live their lives in preparation. Mm -hmm. And so they're like, once I do this, then I will be ready. After I have done this, then I will have the right, uh, the yeah. right skill. After I finish this degree, then I'll be positioned. I think we live our lives in preparation. Not and even I think professionally, personally, too, personally right? Personally, too, like, right. Yeah, 10 and I more think pounds men, and I'll get back right, in that bikini. Exactly. <laughs> that's exactly right. And I think men live lead their lives as though I'm ready now, right? Mm -hmm. And if I'm viewing my world as like constant preparation, I never think that I am qualified. And yeah. that's such undercutting of our skills. Yeah. You have one story that you told when I was at the um, at the seminar, and I don't know if you remember it, but it was a story about your family on vacation, on a ski vacation. Uh-huh. Do you remember this story? I do remember that story. Um, I thought you were going to go for a different story, which oh, is... Oh, tell that one. So I was thinking about what you were saying about this idea of, like, the gender roles. And I remember when my son... So I have two boys, and, um, and I and my husband both work, but I work... And I travel a great deal. Mm -hmm. And my husband travels less in his role um, and, and almost no travel. So he's home much more. And I'm traveling a lot. I have a lot of flexibility. He doesn't have as much flexibility, but he has a more standard schedule. And I have a lot of flexibility to be able to take time off. But I travel. And so we have a very – we both parent very actively. We're both, both really, really involved with the kids. And so um, we were out to dinner. And we and my son, Tyler, who's my youngest, was probably about six years old. And we were at this Mexican restaurant and we were leaving. And um, he said, um, our waitress was was really, really good. Mommy, do you think she was the boss? And I said, I don't know. Maybe she was the boss. She might have been the boss. And he said, well, are there are there women who are bosses? And I said, I said, yes, you know, there are women who are bosses. And and he said, well, how come there aren't as many women that are bosses as there are men that are bosses? And my husband and I started to explain this. And I said, well, you know, Tyler, a long time ago, like way before you were born, there were just many more men that were in the workforce than there were women. And so these men have risen up to these roles. And so there are a lot of men that are bosses and fewer women that are bosses. But that's changing because now there are many, many, many women who work and who are in the workforce like mommy works. And he's in the back seat. And he pauses for a minute. And he goes, mommies don't work. Only my mommy works. My mommy works, but other mommies don't work. And I thought, you know, here's my son, right? He's raised <laughs> in a family where I'm the, I'm the co-founder of the Kellogg Center for Executive Women, right? I'm a professor. I have a company. I'm the CEO of the business. He clearly sees all that. Right. But he also doesn't just see that. Yep. He sees the whole world around him, yeah. what's going on with everybody else. And I'll never forget that because yeah. I think it's really hard 
to change those perceptions. 100%. Because it doesn't yeah. matter what they just see at your house. They right. see the world. Right. Whether it's through the kids at school, whether it's right. through media portrayals, like all of those things will add up into what their expectations are of, of themselves. And, you know, it's funny. My daughter said to my husband, you know, daddies can get jobs too. You could be a teacher. You could be. And she's going through this whole thing. It was the sweetest thing. And it's just like, God, I love that. You know, even if there are all these other influences, they will also have this, you know, other side of things where, where they see it playing out differently. But, I mean, from the mouth of babes, it really right. is. It does. Just, it gives you such good information. Yeah, yeah. Right? And I think that sometimes we fail to see all that they pay attention to. Yes. Right? And all of the things that they're seeing. And I think it's fascinating. I mean, I think that my kids are raised in such an unbelievably gender-neutral environment. Like, I would say, absolutely. And yet... I think that they have a lot of other influences from other yeah, places. Of course, of course. Yeah. Will you share the ski lodge story? It's one of my favorites. Do you it's want a, to? Is it, not, is it not as story. fun for you? No, it's you've fun. probably told it before. No, but, it's a fun story. Oh, it's so great. So this is and my And I want to go on vacation with you. But I know based you, on the story. You should come on vacation with me. <laughs> so this is a story about how I really believe that you want to see opportunities to negotiate. But it's also a story about kind of what I always say, which is if you're negotiating, let's negotiate well, right? Let's have good strategy. Because I think that sometimes people think I can't negotiate because they've used poor strategy. Mm -hmm. um, it's like if I'm negotiating for myself, I have to make sure that I'm establishing how you could do something for me and not have to do it for everybody else. Like I have to make sure that I'm identifying how doing something for me will not establish a dangerous precedent where you'll have to do it for everybody else. Mm -hmm. And so I think that it's always important to think, use the right strategy, differentiate yourself, show how you don't establish precedent. In the same way, I always say that you want to remember five Fs when you negotiate. So okay. these are the five Fs, and they are I you want to go F first, words. you want to go first, you want to focus on them, you want to frame your offer correctly, you want to make sure you're flexible, leave yourself room to concede and use multiple offers at times, and you want to remember the final F, which is no feeble offers. And the reality is people make feeble offers all the time. They walk into a department store, they see a shirt, it has a snag, and they say, could you take something off? When I walk into a department store, see a shirt, and it has a snag, I say, oh my gosh, you're going to have to damage that out. You know, I would take that off your hands if you gave me a 50% discount on it, <laughs> right? The reality is I'm making a clear, specific ask, not a feeble offer. Mm -hmm. So go first, focus on them, frame it correctly. Be flexible, leave yourself room to concede, perhaps use multiple offers, and no feeble offers. And I think you probably heard me share my ski story to highlight those five Fs. So I have two boys, and I don't know about you. Do you have any boys? I have a son, yeah. Uh -huh. So I don't know about you, but my sons um, often, when they would communicate, would like mumble and use single, you know, monosyllabic words, right? So my so, son just turned 12, so I'm enjoying that right yes, now. Yes, right yes. now you see it, right? So I have teenage boys, and um, now they are grown men. One is now 23, and one is 18. So they're grown now. But when they were in high school, I would recognize like these single answer responses. So I decided when my kids were in high school that I got the best information when they were around their friends. Mm. And that when they were around their friends, I would learn because I would watch their interaction. I would learn because I would hear things that they would say to each other. I would learn things from their friends who would offer up a lot more information than my children ever would. Oh, yes. um, so I just felt like it was a great way to learn what was going on with my kids. So I liked spending time with them and their friends. And I decided that I was going to start a tradition. You know, this is the great thing about being a working mom is you get to establish these traditions and perhaps use some of your own resources to pay for some of these traditions. So mm -hmm. the tradition I decided what I would establish was a, a, a weekend of skiing with my son and his five best friends. Oh and so we did it in his freshman year, and it was quite amazing. I, I saw so much. I learned so much. I felt like I really understood what was going on with my, friend, my son and his friends. Aww. So sophomore year comes, and I do another trip. And we go to this incredible hotel that has a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful set of condos in the hotel itself. 
and we're going to stay in a condo. And it literally was just finished. It was finished days before we arrived. The owners have not even stayed in this condo yet. And so we arrive, and I think it's absolutely beautiful, but there's a problem. And the problem is that the TV in the living room doesn't work. Now, you may say, like, why is that such a problem? And this has to do with my fantasy. And the listeners can critique any of my content they want, but they cannot critique my fantasy because this is my fantasy. Off limits. My fantasy. So my fantasy is that at night, after dinner, we're all going to sit around, we're going to eat popcorn, we're going to watch movies, Mm. we're going to chat. And you cannot be eating popcorn, watching movies, and chatting if the TV in the living room doesn't work. So I immediately call down and ask them to send up somebody to fix the TV. And they send up a bellman. And the bellman works on it for a while, but he can't get it fixed. Then they send up a front office manager. And that person works at it for a while and can't get it fixed either. Finally, that evening, they send in the technician who is apparently the highest ranking sort of technical person on grounds. He works on it for a long time, can't get it fixed. This is not a simple TV problem. This is like the unit was just built, they networked this some way, and it's not working. Like the wires, right. yeah, yeah. The next day, they send in the engineer. The engineer apparently is off on Thursdays and was there Friday morning. The engineer comes in, works on it for a long time, still can't get it fixed. So I come back from skiing and I go to work out. And one of the other mothers who was Sorry, staying wait, with you us. You went skiing and then worked out? I did go skiing and then impressive. work out. I did. All and right. then just recently I worked out and then went skiing the last three days. I so thought skiing was a workout. I think skiing is a workout. Right, I think I should stop topic. doing that. But okay. um, so I went, I went um, downstairs to work out. I come back upstairs. And the mom who is staying with me with the boys says to me, oh, Vicki, I don't think you're going to be very happy the front desk just called and they said that they won't be able to fix the TV until Monday because the people who installed the TV have to come in to fix it and they don't work on the weekends. And I said, I'll be right back. And so I went downstairs. (laughs) I went downstairs and I went to the front office and I said, you know, I understand it's a challenge to get someone in to fix the TV, but I'm really, really concerned because clearly I'm not going to pay for the unit until the TV is fixed. And I would feel terrible. I mean, I would feel really bad if I stayed in that unit for four entire days and paid you nothing. Like, I think that would be awkward. So I'm really hoping that you can get someone in there to fix the TV so that I can begin to pay for the room. And I went back upstairs. And the woman who was staying with me Um, was one of the mothers of one of the other boys, but she also is the CEO of a company. And she said, so what did you ask for? And I said, oh, I told them I wasn't going to pay until the TV was fixed. And her mouth dropped open. And she said, Vicki, this is like a 4,000 square foot condo. What do you mean you're not going to pay? It's like four bedrooms. You're not going to pay until the TV is fixed. And I said, it's my first offer. I have room to concede. And so that was, you know, the starting point. So the next morning, 7 a.m., guess who's at my door? Of course. They, yeah. <laughs> the people who weren't able to materialize on the they weekend, suddenly right? Suddenly they're on there. The weekends, yeah. Suddenly they're there. And so they work on it, and it takes hours. They get it fixed, though, by like 2 o'clock that day. So I come back from skiing that day, and I get a call from the general manager of the hotel. And the general manager says, I understand there's a problem with your unit. And I said, I have to tell you. This is an absolutely spectacular unit. It is so beautiful. And I'm just really happy that we were able to be your punchless family. Because I know that your highest priority is to make sure that those owners, when they arrive next week, are absolutely delighted with this beautiful place. And I'm so glad that we were able to stay in it and identify all those punch list items, those things that needed to be remedied before your owners arrived. I feel like your owners are going to be much more happy now that we've stayed here and identified all those punch list items and gotten them all resolved. And he said, but I heard you don't want to pay. I said, well, of course I'm not going to pay when the TV was broken. But now that the TV is fixed, I'm happy to pay. And, you know, there are small other things like light switches and the shower head. But I've given you all those issues, and you can get them all addressed, and I'm happy to pay now that the TV is fixed. And he said, I cannot give you that unit for 
for two days because the TV was broken. And I said, it actually is two and a half days. And he said, I, I cannot give you that unit for two and a half days because the TV was broken. And I said, well, actually, it, it, it is two and a half days and, and it hasn't worked. And he goes, I'll tell you what, I'll give you one night free. And I said, but it isn't one night. It really is two and a half days. And he said, but Vicki, there are four other TVs in that unit. There's a TV in every bedroom. And there's also a TV in the den. I mean, there literally are four TVs in bedrooms and a TV in the den in that unit. And I said, I know. And that's exactly where the problem would have come in. I mean, just think about it. Think about your owners who come here next week and they're so excited about their beautiful new home. And they hire a chef to come and make dinner in this fabulous kitchen. I mean, this kitchen is gorgeous with the granite and the great appliances. It's beautiful. So they make the dinner in the kitchen and they lay out the great room table. And it's all set and they light the fire in the fireplace and they call the kids down and they go to turn on the TV to have a movie during dinner and they go to turn it on and it doesn't work. And now the kids just scramble off to all the other TVs. I mean, if there were no other TVs, then clearly they probably would have stayed and played a game or something. But with four or five other TVs in the unit, they would just be gone like that. Can you imagine how angry those owners would be? Oh, my gosh, I'm so glad we avoided that crisis. And he said, I, I'll, give you, I'll give you one night now. And I'll give you one night the next time you come back. And I said, well, you know, we were really inconvenienced now. Um, but I understand you've got constraints. And we are happy to come back um, because, you know, we love this place. And it's beautiful. And your staff has been lovely. And it really is a fabulous unit. I said, so you'd give me one night now and one night the next time we come back and stay in this same unit. And he said, yes. And I said, well, you know, we're booked to come back at President's Weekend. So you'd give me one night now and one night at President's Weekend when we return. And he said, yes. And I said, well, you know, I understand you have constraints. We do like the unit. We're happy to come back. And as I said, you know, I'm just so happy that we were able to be your punchless family and really make sure that every single thing in this unit would be perfect for your new owners. Because I know that's what you care the most about, is are they satisfied with their new home? And I really feel like after we found all these things, they'll be satisfied with their new home. Do you ski? Me? Mm-hmm. Oh, we're, we're cutting character now. Uh, I, shouldn't be so hard to answer. I, I know how to. I don't do it often. So do you know about pricing at President's Day? It's quite high. Uh-huh. So, you know, a lot of people would say it probably is double the price of normal times. So I would say that what we ended up with were three nights free. Yeah. Right? But the key thing in this story is look at the pattern. Number one, I went first. Right? So I went in and I made the first offer. Yeah. I am quite convinced that if I had called down and made a feeble offer – and said something like, the TV is broken. Can you do something for me? Mm-hmm. I think like they would have bucks. done something. Oh, yeah. I think I would have gotten chocolate-covered strawberries. Right. I mean, I think this place right. solves all all price problems with chocolate-covered strawberries. So I think I would have gotten chocolate-covered strawberries. I bet I would have gotten six, not three. Um, I, I don't think I would have gotten champagne because the kids were there, right? But I think six chocolate-covered strawberries would have probably been the resu- the resolution. The problem is, though, once they've defined it as a six chocolate problem, chocolate covered strawberry problem, I can't, in as effective of a way, re anchor that as a multi thousand dollar problem. Right. And that's why you need to lead. That's right. why you have to go first. You have to focus on them. You know, as I recounted the story for this podcast, that was the Cliff Notes version. But my friend who was there listening said that I used the word punchless family 16 times in the actual <laughs> conversation. Um, and I think that, you know, that's really key, right? It's a focus on them, not on us. Mm-hmm. Um, so go first, focus on them, frame it correctly. When you want to get the other side to move off the status quo and do something new or do something different, you want to highlight loss. This comes out of Kahneman's work on prospect theory. You want to highlight loss. When you want to maintain the status quo, you highlight gain. So I wanted them to do something different, and I use lost words. That's why I talked about what a disaster that would have been. Can you imagine how 
angry they would have been. That was a mm. crisis that was diverted, right? I'm using lost frames because I'm trying to get them to move off the status quo. Mm -hmm. Be flexible. When I made my initial offer, I didn't think I would get two nights free. But I knew that I would leave myself room to concede and get something that would be valuable to me. Yeah. Leave yourself room to concede. I didn't use multiple offers there, although I often do give three options at the same time. But what I really did was not make a feeble offer. Right. So I always say, when you think about that lesson, remember, you don't want to end up with chocolate-covered strawberries. Yeah. So don't ask them, can you do something for me? Yet so often when we negotiate, we say things like, can you give me a promotion? Can you get me a better position? Can you give me better shelf space in the grocery store? Mm -hmm. Right? Can you give me more visibility? We make very feeble offers. And when we make feeble offers, we get feeble results. Yeah. So be clear and specific in what you ask for. Oh, my God. I mean, honestly, this is just such gold gem of advice. I love that story. I love every way that you bring things from a obviously an academic perspective, given your vast experience and all of your expertise, but into the core of just how we are as people and how we engage with one another and how, you know, I'm just impressed by how quickly you think on your feet with these types of situations. And I think you've given our listeners such a gift of your insights. Um, so thank you so much for making the time to come and speak with us and thank sharing you. everything. I love what you're doing. And thank I have you. to say that I work with a lot of very senior, very successful women. And I find that so many of them are the breadwinner mm -hmm. and that that is something that needs to be talked about. And I really appreciate that you're taking the time to talk about that and that you're highlighting that it is something to be proud of yes. and that it's something where we need each other and each other's support um, because it is a challenge. Mm -hmm. And talking about that helps us to all navigate those challenges. So I think it's fabulous what you're doing. Oh. Thank you so much. Thank you. This was just absolutely wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in for our conversation. Lots more to come every Tuesday. So head on over to iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe so you don't miss anything. Please feel free to leave us a review to give us some direct feedback and also to help get the podcast in front of more eyes and ears. We really appreciate your support. Until next time.